Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Tessa. Hello. Also joining us this week is the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast, friend of the podcast, here again with us, Melissa. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on and talking about the Wachowskis this week. We're talking about the films directed by the Wachowski sisters that don't have Matrix in the title. And I know what you're thinking. That's probably a lot of movies. It isn't. Bound, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, and Jupiter Ascending. That is the entirety of the list. Why are we doing that? Because we have been inspired by Melissa's podcast, Wild Pretty Things. They are currently in the midst of a series on the Wachowskis. In fact... In what I understand is the most current episode of Wild Pretty Things, you can hear Tessa and I talking about all the Wachowski movies that do have Matrix in the title. I feel like with the Wachowskis, there is like that division between Matrix films and all the other content that they've made over the years. Yeah, one piece of discussion that I know that is going to happen later on this year is whether or not V for Vendetta counts as a Wachowski film because they didn't direct it. That's, you know. We also watched that this week, we but did we also won't be talking it. Yes. about it. Yes. And uh, you have previously, Tessa, finished Sense8. Uh, I am, I have now seen season one twice. Working on season two. All right. So let's go and start with the movie that came first. Let's talk about Bound, the sexy, sexy, sexy thriller with uh, Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly. And of course, everyone's favorite uh, traitor from The Matrix, Joey Pants. I will say it took me a while to recognize him in this movie the first time I watched it. <laughs> oh, okay. His, his, his wig is off-putting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His, his wig is pretty off-putting. So That is the most off-putting thing about him in this movie. <laughs> Otherwise delightful character. Yeah, great. No notes. <laughs> this movie... One, very, very clearly part of that special crew undertoning. I don't know. I don't know what you call it. The thing that happened after Pulp Fiction, where there is a spread of these kinds of movies where you know, it's a bit of a of a tense thriller. They're, they're, they're mixing a little bit with chronology for some reason, uh, as the first scene is uh, from the third act. The whole idea for this movie is that Gina Gershon, that's right, Jughead's mom from Riverdale. <laughs> That was my reference to it when we recorded our episode with Elise. <laughs> is is uh, I guess renovating, kind of acting as a, a super for a building, fixing things up, and she immediately sees a really, really, really hot lady, and this really, really hot lady sees her, and the tension is immediate, and basically, uh, you find out within five, five. 10, 15 minutes, uh, lady's husband or boyfriend or whatever, uh, Caesar, played by Joey Pants, is involved in the mafia. And uh, a plot to rob money from the mafia kind of comes up over time. Now, have any of you seen The Postman Always Rings Twice, either version? I've seen the first one, but not the adaptation remake. I, I haven't seen yet either. So Neither I, have I. I then in that case, it, it, would be, it would be news to you to find out that the premise of this movie is actually a classic noir setup. 
And that is one of the things that the Wachowskis are doing in this movie. And I'm going to drop a plug for our November, November series right here, right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bound would have easily fit in our 90s week of November coming this November. So the, the Postman Always Rings Twice is probably the perfect distillation of this premise. You can see it in Double Indemnity and other films as well. But this is the idea of the drifter coming into town, the femme fatale, you know, conning them into doing something, conning him, because it's always a him, into doing something using their feminine wiles. And the end of the film, we find out that the femme fatale has in fact used this drifter as a dupe and there are bad consequences for everybody involved, including the the husband who is a sap. Right, right, right. But that's a Hays Code thing where uh, being a bad person can't pay off. Yes, ever since the Hays Code was gotten rid of and we moved to the Motion Picture Association ratings, you can be a bad person without consequence. That is right. <laughs> On screen and in real life. Well, you could be a bad person off screen before the Hays Code. I think that was pretty I don't easy. I think that's true. I no, no, I true. think the Hays Code actually no. would cens- censor you in your real life, right. too. If well, that's you... why Prohibition happened, little known fact. The Hays Code, <laughs> they were like, nope, shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Wall Street, shut it down. So, Andy, you mentioned that this movie is very sexy. How sexy is this movie? Uh, you, you know what? I'm a 32-year-old man on my own, you know, li- living with my wife. I was still looking over my shoulders to make sure my parents didn't walk in the room. Uh, <laughs> this, 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 is, this is the exact kind of, like, sexy thriller that I, I want to see. First of all, the, um, it, it feels heavy-handed the way yeah, uh, Gina Gershon comes into the elevator with Jennifer Tilly, and they are IFing each other like crazy as 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 is as if to spell out hey 90s viewers you might have heard that some women are attracted to other women no <laughs> and this 90s viewers in case you can't pick up on this this is the subtext it, it's it's a little obvious wait wait, it, wait 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 andy andy hold on you know i know this is usually this is a role reversal here but i just have to say i don't believe the wachowskis do subtext I don't think that's true. I don't think you're right. I know many writers who use subtext. They're cowards. Every single one of them. <laughs> we'll, we we'll, like our text meta or not at all. <laughs> I have to say, this is a heist movie. This is sexy. I think it was Lana who said that they had to cut some stuff out because of, quote, hand sex. So what you're saying is it could have been sexier. Yes, yes. We were deprived of more sexy. Uh, yeah. So, so there's there's the there are these beautiful scenes with Jennifer Tilly trying to seduce Gina Gershon, Violet trying to seduce Corky, and the way the camera is positioned, you see this whole empty room, and these two and these two people are just breathing down each other's neck. It is so. <laughs> I I I just. This is this is the femme fatale cranked up to like one hundred. Uh, this is this is wonderful to watch. I, I you believe the chemistry right off the bat. It is it is hard for me to uh, say anything about about this without coming off as uh, as you know a leering male gaze because holy, f- I 
was leering. <laughs> Speaking of leering male gaze, I think this is a really good time to point out that if you listen to last week's episode, we talked about another film that had a leering male gaze, Barbarella. Would you be surprised to find out that both movies were financed by the gasp? Same person, Dino De Laurentiis. That, that doesn't surprise me because last week we talked about how he's financed like over 500 films. Like, Man likes films. Loves films. With, with, with gaze. I will say for and my... Gaze. <laughs> I will say from my experience, this is the kind of film that we don't make a lot anymore. I love sexy thrillers. I love sexy noir films. And despite Ben Affleck and Anna Diarmas's attempt to replicate this in <laughs> Deep Water, which was not very good, I wish we made more of these kinds of films. Like, I wish that the sexy thriller would make a comeback because, yeah, it's like... There's not only just like the sexiness in this film, but there's also just the the tension between these two characters is like replicated in the crime itself because you're not sure and Corky isn't sure whether Violet is ever going to double cross her throughout this whole film. So it becomes like this layer of like they're attracted to each other, but they're not sure they should be. And like, it's, it's like this really beautiful ripple effect through the film. Right, right, right. And there's, there's even just little hints of, uh, I'm not who you think I am on, on the inside. Also, I mean, pretty much the wardrobe in this film that Gina Gershon Corky wears is like, okay, we have this idea for a movie called the matrix. How do we start testing out this, uh, the the leather and like working I, I don't I don't know it's it's so hard to 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 speak about this without like coming off like a creep because the the sexiness is such a part of what this film is trying to replicate bound makes creeps of us all yes and it, it, it uh <laughs> but it, it it keeps you guessing as to what's gonna happen um it's almost almost like a uh, single location film too which is really cool. Yeah, because most of it happens in that apartment complex. Right, right. And and as, as the tension increases and you don't know what Joey Pants is going to do, you don't know what um, what what Corky's going to do, you don't know what the other members of the mob are going to do. And I got to say, Chris Maloney plays the perfect, the absolute perfect mob idiot. It's so good. I almost wish that he would not have gotten caught up in SVU, even though I have enjoyed watching 500 hours of SVU in my lifetime. It's just like he did not have time to take other roles. And I think that that is a shame for us all. I am I am so happy that he found his his uh, his commissioner, Gordon. Yeah. And uh, Harley Quinn. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> um, but holy crap, th- this this was like the kind of movie that I was like, okay, yeah, 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 I, I, I get what this is going for. Uh, okay, yep, okay, we got to be like almost done. Check. Wait, there's 50 minutes left. I don't mind that. Where is this gonna go? <laughs> the twists are there. They're very real. The it's very gay. I, I, I want the Wachowskis to go back to making movies like this. I want anyone to go back to making movies like this because this feels like also the type of movie that we could have been getting, you know, immediately post COVID when we were doing small cast, single locations. But the problem with that is there's no kissing in COVID protocols. So there's no crying in baseball and there's no kissing in COVID. No kissing in COVID. (laughs) 
one of the things that's important about this movie without spoiling it is, again, if you're familiar with the noir tropes that it's playing on, the constant tension is whether it's going to do exactly what you think it's going to do or something else. As you pointed out with the with the Hays Code, it has to play out a certain way. And and the the handful of smart noir movies since the uh, MPAA ratings have been the ones that make you really unsure. And this is this is one of those. Yes, yes. Uh there there is a scene where Joey Pants does the exact opposite of what you think he's going to do and what these characters think he's going to do. And it is my level of interest was already at like a 10 and it somehow went higher. Okay. So you've, you brought up Joey pants. You brought him up a couple times. I know you're really uncomfortable talking about the leering gaze of this movie, but come on, you haven't talked about Joey pants and sexiness yet. I mean, I, you can be unleashed on that one. Go ahead. Okay. Joey pants stupid, dumb, ugly face, balding, you know, you know uh, there, there, there's a great scene where you see how bald he actually is, and it's 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 wonderful. You do also as much nipple action as you see from the women. You do see, if you freeze frame it, a bit of dong <gasps> from Joey Pants. <laughs> you, you, you know, how this sexy is this, is this movie? <laughs> this is just like if, if you listen to my old podcast, Geek 101, when we talked about Wild Wild West... You can see Will Smith's balls if you freeze frame it. Sam is losing herself. Hold on, I'm updating my movie <laughs> this list. Is, this is this is Clinton's <laughs> America right here, people. <laughs> freeze frame dogs and balls everywhere. And Thanks, anyway, Bill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in all honesty, like Cesare or Caesar or whatever you want to call Joey Pants's character. There, there's a great scene early on when uh, Jennifer Tilly's like, "Hey, I'm trying to seduce you," and they start uh, fooling around on the couch, and then Joey Pants comes in. And they freak out, and Joey Pants gets so upset, and then goes like, "Oh, it's a woman!" <laughs> uh, of course, and just like writes off any kind of any kind of threat or possibility that there is any physical interaction with these two, because you know two women can't be physical. I honestly find yeah, that character go. terrifying because you're absolutely right. There is like the beginning of the film establishes him as like this character. He's the sap, right? Like he's the the guy that's like one is getting pulled over on him and like he doesn't understand what's going on because he can't imagine like two women having sex or being attracted right. to each other. But then like the way that like you said he subverts some of those expectations, you really start to realize that you have absolutely no idea how he's going to react in any situation, whether it's going to be like with extreme anger or with like this weird kind of cunning that he shows later in the film. Like mm-hmm. it's really beautiful. The acting he does in this. I also want to say just as a another thing, um, this movie does feature one of the dumbest moments of a, of a, of a main character who, if the entire plot is based around the fact that these walls are paper thin and <laughs> you can hear everything through these walls, there's a moment where the super smart Gina Gershon does not do the one thing that she should have done. I hate it. It goes on for like seven seconds and you're like, why, why don't you just fucking do this? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Andy, you say that in the notes here, you make a very bold claim that this is the best thing the Wachowskis have done. That's not bold. Well, let me take that to uh, a little preview of 
uh, of of things to come. Melissa is is bound their best movie. I have an issue with best and favorite because <laughs> Bound is not my favorite Wachowski project, so I'm not going to say it's the best. <laughs> Tessa? I mean, I kind of agree with Melissa here because I actually think it's difficult to rank Wachowski films according to like an objective measurement because the Matrix, the first Matrix film is just so like culturally transformative that it would it would be difficult to ignore that in favor of like some other measurement. However, I do think Bound is one of my favorites. It is just such a great film. And it, I think the other problem is it's so different from anything else they've ever done. Like they got away from this style of filmmaking fairly quickly. And so it's just, it's very interesting. You know, actually, if I could be objective, I would maybe say that Bound is their best because at no point is it meandering. At no point are there dropped plots. There's just enough cast members to make sense. All of those things that they kind of, they they get away from, like you said, that in their later projects. But those are things I like about Wachowski films, even though I understand that maybe that's like technically more messy filmmaking. Like, I love the huge Sense8 cast. Right. <laughs> I love that I, you know, spoilers for what's to come. I love that I have like no idea what's going on for like 67% of Cloud Atlas. <laughs> but not everybody loves those <laughs> things. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. If you're looking at this from like a technical perspective, this is perhaps, like you said, the least messy of their films. I, I'll say here that I, I feel like there's a, there's a certain to because Tessa's been talking about this a lot, about how it's difficult to rank their films. And in my mind, I'm like, no, it's not. And I realized, I think I realized what's going on here. It is, it is the fact that I subscribe to the 1990s Nicolas Cage school of filmmaking. And I will quote Nicolas Cage from the classic 1997 film, Face Off. You're not having any fun. <laughs> and I am so glad. I am so glad that Lazi's going to be with us for two weeks in a row <laughs> in a few weeks. Because, in the words of Lazi, why do you hate Joy? To put these films about... up against each other for all their craziness and just race them? It's great. It's well, so much fun. Then this what is do not you their think? best film. Come on. Okay. Come Bound, on. Bound is not their best film? No. No way. Mm. No way. Okay. They so... literally made a movie that shaped... 21st century filmmaking that shifted the entire paradigm of how to make movies. It's not my favorite film, but it is their best film. You just, I, I don't so know, I don't know like, how you can say anything else. Does When we're talking about the Wachowskis, does the definition of best change? Because, I mean, I uh, think this is basically just what I was saying earlier, which is that the things that I love the most about the Wachowskis aren't like, the best things about some other filmmaker, but it is my favorite things about that. That's them. fair. What's the word for like the little grading thing your third grade teacher gave you? Like a rubric? I think the rubrics are different <laughs> when you're looking okay. at different filmmakers. When I was your age, <laughs> when I was your age, when you were in third grade, we didn't have rubrics. Okay. We got our names on the board and we got beat. Okay, so, so I funny. did have you to. You said what the sliding scale is of like how bad I was that day. <laughs> yeah. When I was in third grade, I also had to write my own name on the board for being too talkative in class. 
I knew I liked you for a reason. It was horrifying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is. It is interesting because it's a really it's a hard question to think about because objectively best is probably not a good metric to use when talking about the Wachowskis. If you if you think about what they brought to filmmaking as a hermetically sealed thing, what does it mean to make a Wachowski film and what's the best example of that? And, you know, it's like we lost it. He got so offended. <laughs> it's it's like with um, Bound is like not their movie. It's the only movie they made that doesn't look like a Wachowski movie. It looks like somebody else could have made it. It's good. So, Melissa, really quickly, why? What were go? What was going through your mind and Jared's minds when you decided <laughs> to do an entire series on Wild Pretty Things about the Wachowskis? So, my short answer is just that Jared told me to, so I started watching them. Um, <laughs> but really, uh, we're looking to kind of refocus the show to get more into full filmographies of women and, you know, really just not men in cinema. And I think that for both of us, the Wachowskis are a natural and exciting place to kind of start going back and exploring that essential list because it's a list full of great movies, movies that hit on different things. We've talked a lot about how the Wachowskis, their filmography feels cohesive in a way there's just lots to talk about and there's a finite amount of these projects so it just seemed kind of a natural place to start um the matrix as everyone now knows is a long-standing favorites of favorite of jared's and a new favorite of mine um so the choice and like <laughs> finding a reason to get more people to watch and dedicate time to sensei is a passion of mine <laughs> <laughs> so the combination of those two things also felt really natural and the work of the Wachowskis hits a lot of wild pretty things interests um intersectional feminism sci-fi liking movies more than the general public likes those movies meta narratives sexy casts uh I could probably go on <laughs> but yeah I think that that kind of sums it up I really like how as you're answering that question you said we're doing the Wachowskis filmography because we want to pivot towards this entire, you know, filmography of women filmmakers. And you didn't add a single caveat. No, <laughs> no, nothing. And I really appreciate the fact that, well, I just appreciate that. Like, that's it. No notes. There's no, you, you just say it and that's all. Had you watched Sense8 before starting the Wild Pretty Things project? Yeah, well, um, the yes, yes, because I got confused. I started Sense8 around the time Jared and I started the podcast. Um, so I had seen it like while it was airing on Netflix. I had seen all of it before we started the Wild Pretty Things Wachowski project. Um, and that was my first Wachowski project period I saw the matrix for the first time in 2019 when they did anniversary screenings and then I did the full series before resurrections etc cetera, etc cetera. and now we're here it happened so fastly I've seen them all fastly is not a word <laughs> <laughs> I mean the thing about the Wachowskis I think I liked that you pointed out that they have like a finite filmography you could watch all of these films in, within two weeks, mm -hmm. right? Um, it might take a little longer to do Sense8 since that's a whole series, but 
like the idea of being able to just sit down and like watch all of these films, I just think is interesting because you can watch their progression, not only as filmmakers, but also like the progression of them, like questioning things like gender and questioning things like sexuality. And like, we're going to be on wild, pretty things to talk about sensei, which we're not talking about today, but like in a lot of ways, sensei is sort of like the culminating achievement of a lot of those ideas that they'd been working on for years. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I think that Sensei, I would say that Sensei is their best project, even though by most metrics, it's quote unquote, maybe their worst because it's like very messy. The plot makes no sense. It got canceled and had to come back for a movie, like all these things. But yeah, I think that the way that they work with their cast, the things that they're talking about, the way that Sensei is literally just about like love and connection, like that is the culmination of the Wachowskis to me, I think. And it, it's also, as of right now, the literal culmination. Like, that mm-hmm. was their last project together. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it won't be forever, but if it is, it's a pretty decent one to end on. Andy, it's your turn. While you were away, we segued to talking about our previous relationship with the Wachowskis. <laughs> I, have, I have been dreading this. How do you really feel about the Wachowskis, Andy? Uh, well, you, you would fucking ask me this. I, I, I have been dreading this. I'm trying to think of the right way. I, I have been literally thinking about and dreading this for days. I like the Wachowski's movies. Recent things that I believe it is Lana has said Anna. really don't vibe with me. Also, the way that they respond with any sort of criticism or implication that they might have uh, appropriated Asian culture for their own personal gain as white people. But what do you? what's your experience with their filmography? Their filmography, I have seen all the Matrix movies. I have laughed at Jupiter Ascending. I have cringed away from uh, Cloud Atlas. And I have uh, wanted to watch Speed Racer for quite a while. That is my... Oh, and I've I've watched like the first three episodes of Sense8 like six times, and that's about it. <laughs> Just the first three episodes of Sense8. Oh, I've also seen V for Vendetta. I think they're cool. I think what they do is cool. I think that they are very brave for for coming out in Hollywood. Yeah, and they're very visually interesting. And I can talk a lot about Jupiter Ascending because it's a movie that should have worked and didn't. And and we will talk about that. Yeah, that very fact later. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just saying that they. They don't. They don't. At least Lana doesn't like to acknowledge that uh, they succeeded because of nepotism. Yeah. Or, or at least they got their first chance because of nepotism. Let's just say that. I mean, it wouldn't be Hollywood if that wasn't true, right? Right. 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 I'm. I'm just. I'm just saying what Lana has said now about how hard it is to succeed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they never. They never had to rely on the blacklist. Right. 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 I, I'm. Ju- I'm just saying it's. It's it's a classist thing, uh, but what I've heard about the Matrix Revolutions and what I believe Lily directed Matrix Revo- Resurrections, right? Lana. Lana did. Lana did. Okay. Yeah. What what I, what I've heard has has been positive. That's the Wachowskis. I'm always interested in at least what they theoretically can do. They're like Edgar Wright. They're clearly nerds, which I love. What they did with the Matrix Online was super awesome. They're cool and creative, and they try to do semi-original stuff, and I appreciate that. Tessa. Of course, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Wachowskis already, but I don't know that we've ever gone back and asked this question. What's your previous relationship with the Wachowskis? 
So I watched The Matrix. My dad showed me The Matrix, I should say, for the first time when I was, I think I was like 10, maybe. Wait, when did it come out? Yeah, I would have been like 10 or 11. And it was the first R-rated film that I had ever seen. So, like, that's, like, one of the, like, special places in my heart. Now, my dad's interpretation of that film is very different from the way that I interpret that film now. But it definitely was a series that I was very invested in. I watched it multiple times. My parents are conservative, so obviously they weren't going to show me films like Bound or Speed Racer or Cloud Atlas or anything like that. But it was interesting the way that The Matrix really shaped filmmaking. And I was sort of coming of age and exploring filmmaking around the same time that that was happening. So it's really interesting to like grow up and see the effects of like this really, really interesting movie that I had a lot of connection with across like my teenage years, especially, but it wasn't really until my twenties that I started really exploring them as filmmakers. Obviously, like we've talked about V for Vendetta, not, not, directed by them but the script is written by them and as somebody who loves graphic novels I love their adaptation of Alan Moore's work probably more than I like Alan Moore's original version of it there's a lot of things we could talk about with what they did with like making that text more queer and more about love than what is in the original anarchist 80s centric text of Alan Moore. I have also probably really controversial opinions about Alan Moore, but it, you know, that was a movie that I also watched in my teenage years. And so that was mainly my connection with them. And then I started filling in the gaps in my twenties and just every, every film that I've watched of theirs has just been like opening a present. Like, even if I don't, like it as much or it's not like my favorite it is like just having this new experience with these people that I'm I feel very connected to and very close to and like Melissa Sensei is one of my favorite television programs I've seen it multiple times and I love it so much Tessa while we're here let's go ahead and talk about I think what definitely fills Andy's earlier definition of visually interesting speed racer what what is a speed <laughs> what is, is a, a speed, speed racer, racer? A man, a myth, a legend, an anime, or is my mate, or is it a new, is it a new kind of sport using amphetamines and physical exercise? Is 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 this the movie where the main character goes into the Alaskan wilderness and dies from it? No. Okay. Uh, so Speed Racer is a 2008 adaptation of a 1960s anime series of the same name. It is basically about an 18-year-old, basically, I'm, I'm using this loosely, about a 18-year-old automobile racer at some point in the near to distant future in a like more sci-fi city who follows his apparently deceased brother's career and like chooses to remain loyal to his family even when he's offered like I'm sorry he chooses to remain loyal to his family's business his automobile business even after he is offered like this uh, sponsorship with a large corporation wait, and so, wait 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 are you saying this is a movie about cars and racing where the most important thing is family yes okay it's not fast and furious this is not however. fast and furious uh but okay. it like, it's very much about, like, the tension between 
sponsorship by corporations and the way that corporations interfere with racing, with sports, with uh, you know competitions in general, and commodify them in a lot of ways, and with the desire to excel and to make art basically with you know what you have and so it's it's a really interesting narrative I feel like that is the least I can say to explain the summary of this film because there's just so much going on this is based on an anime right yeah have you have you seen that I haven't seen the anime. So here's the thing about this film. I have not seen the 1960s anime Speed Racer. I know it's a cult classic for a lot of people. So I can't really speak to like how well this is adapted. If you've seen it and you've seen both things, maybe you can tell me. But I will say that this is perhaps the best live adaptation of an anime that I've ever ever seen like in terms of the visuals question what live action adaptations of anime have you seen oh i mean i knew you were gonna put me on the spot but uh i've seen a few um you've seen that that one with alita battle angel is the one i'm thinking of bad movie i was thinking about avatar terrible movie bad movie um (laughs) but yeah like i for me, I just think this is interesting because the way that they filmed it, and this was really controversial when it came out, was that it was shot entirely on green screen in a studio in Berlin over a 60-day period. So like all of the actors are acting against green screen, which to me on paper sounds horrible. Like I've seen the prequels of the Star Wars trilogy, a lot of which was filmed against very bad green screen. So on paper, I should hate this film. And I think that people did dislike this film. Or I should say some people disliked this film because of the way that it was filmed. However, what this allowed them to do, and I have to say after watching it, this is the best use of green screen I think that I've ever seen. Like it is very well done green screen. There was only a couple parts where I could be like, yeah, I can kind of see this feels a little dated. But for the most part, it's very well done. I think what this allows them to do that gives them an a a leg up on other adaptations that I have seen is that it allows them to more closely mimic the way that anime will do like a high definition focus. This was the first time that they used high definition video in their work and they used it to kind of layer these different images on top of each other. The way the characters move feels like it's animated, even though it's live action, the way that, like even even the way that characters fight it looks like they're animated even though they're like live action characters the racing looks amazing um which you know it's kind of like Alita Battle Angel in the sense that like this is not racing as we currently know of it right this is like a futuristic they're going around loops yeah, and this like is pod bouncing off people. stuff this is great. And, yeah so it it's very exciting in a lot of ways now I will say that it took me a minute to get used to what they were doing visually and to understand what they were doing visually. A lot of the critiques of this film come from like the fact that visually it's almost dizzying to watch because it's so like, there's just so much going on at the screen and it's all in definition, right? It's, you can see all of it. There's no like focal point. So 
I could understand why people wouldn't like this. But to me, I think it represents, I've never seen this, I've never seen a film like this. I've never seen anyone try to replicate this style of filmmaking. For me, it's a huge swing. And I think for the most part, they pull it off. Melissa, what did you think about this one? So I have now seen Speed Racer two times. I watched it for the first time on Jared's recommendation after I got into the Fast and Furious franchise. And that was a great recommendation. They even do like a little highway, like saving someone scene. And I was like, oh, this is Fast and Furious. Um, (laughs) But it's funny because when I put this movie on this last week to rewatch to prep for this podcast, I literally felt like I was seeing it for the first time. Like I had remembered some of the story beats, but you just like cannot keep all of this imagery in your mind, not even while watching it, not when it's over. One of my new bucket list items is to see this film in a theater. That would be really cool. I want my mind blown. <laughs> Tessa, you, you've seen uh, Sucker Punch, right? Yes. Would you say Sucker Punch is like a failure of this kind of super green screened? I can't even compare the two okay. because they look so different from each other. I have real conflicted feelings about sucker punch sucker punch isn't good like it's not good yeah it's not it's not great but it kind of tricks you into thinking it's great at parts and so it's it's difficult to like talk about anyway by the way asking somebody if they've seen sucker punch is an excellent pickup line that i would recommend uh so that's yes that's the story now you know yeah so the other oh, yes, thing that's about right. this film the other thing I think this film does really well, so uh, going back to something I said earlier uh, about Alita Battle Angel, that film is horrible because it tries to cram an entire anime series into one film. Like it tries to talk about every single plot beat in this like way too fast, way underdeveloped sort of way, you know, in a two and a half hour film. This film manages to make you feel like you have watched a series worth of content without it ever feeling like anything is underdeveloped. Like, and that's used, that's partially through the way that time is layered in this film, because you do get to see like a young speed racer and you get, get to see like, you know, the way he got into racing and his interactions with his brother, but it doesn't hit all of that all at once. Like you get it through different flashback scenes. You get sort of this repetition of certain things where speed is remembering things that happened in a different way later on. And it it just works very, very well. Also, this is actually a pretty good cast. I mean, you get Emile Hirsch as speed racer. You get Christina Ricci as Trixie speeds girlfriend. Uh, Fun, Fun trivia fact, Ariel Winter is the young Trixie in this, and I love Ariel Winter. I didn't recognize her at first in this, but that is her. You also get John Goodman as Pops Racer, Susan Sarandon as Mom Racer, and then Matthew Fox as Racer X. This is the only other property (laughs) I have ever seen Matthew Fox in other than Lost. So That's it. We're going to watch Party of Five next year. We will not be watching Party of Five next year. I So this is a good place to plug Tessa Watches Lost, which is our other episodes that come out on Fridays. I'm in a fight currently with Matthew Fox's character on that show, <laughs> but it's, but like, I it was so weird seeing him in like an actual film. I was like, 
what you know like this doesn't this doesn't feel right it upsets me because i think jack on lost i also have a complicated relationship with but matthew fox is like kind of cute in speed racer and that makes me upset (laughs) oh he's great in speed racer I, I think that he does a really good job of playing this mysterious person who, like, he might be Speed's deceased brother, but he also might not be. And so, like, there's this, like, like is he, like, how is this going to play out? Like, what's his relationship to Speed? Like, why is he motivated to interact with Speed in this way? If you watch the first episode of Speed Racer, and then you watch the second episode of Speed Racer, the recap of the plot for episode two tells you whether or not racer x is and and it's funny because this plot point is not discussed at all in the in the first episode that's horrible the wachowskis do not do that to you they they definitely do a good job of making you like go back and forth about racer x's identity well and there's also something very important here and this is like early on in the film so it's not too much of a spoiler a different actor plays Speed's brother in flashbacks. Uh, in fact, it's QB1 himself, Scott Porter, who plays his brother in flashbacks. Racer X is, of course, Matthew Fox. So I was so happy. I started yelling QB1 at the TV. Who? Tessa looked at me like Who's I was QB1? crazy. I always yell their character names at the TV. Like right, whenever right. Jesse Plemons comes on, I always yell Landry. What, it just but keeps happening. I don't know. I don't know what character that is. Doesn't matter. No, it doesn't does matter. to me. What what reference are you making? Talking about Friday Night Lights. Come on, man. So there's also, and this Jarrett brought this up when we were on Wild Pretty Things, but there is also, of course, a tie-in to our own podcast name because one of the major characters of the film is a chimpanzee named Chim Chim, who is the companion of Spurtle Racer, Speed's younger brother. And those two are really funny. I thought, I'm not always a huge fan of like the precocious, wacky, like younger sibling doing shenanigans, right? Like it can come off as really cloying and sentimental. It works in this film. Like the the frenetic speed at which this film works, at the, at the, the way that it sort of layers all these different storylines on top of each other, they actually work really well to sort of break up some of the the racing sequences especially the other thing i was going to say is that john goodman is actually very very good in this <laughs> like he does a great job of playing like this dad who has like a complicated relationship with all of his children but he's also incredibly funny he has one of the best lines in the entire film which is terrible what passes for a ninja these days which just made me laugh and laugh and laugh like it is it is phenomenal the way that the cast works in this film that's awesome this this is such a good movie it's it's so great there is like a cult revival and you know justice for a speed racer uh, amongst especially anime fans, and it's one of the reasons why I really do want to give this movie a shot. It's just over two hours long, and uh, you know my rule. I have seen minutes of the original anime, and I think this is this this really felt like my memory of that. I absolutely would love to see this on a big screen. Would do. I think that's a great idea. Before we pivot to Cloud Atlas, I just want to say really fast: the budget for Bound was six million dollars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is the $6 million movie. Mm-hmm. And so 
Speed Racer, by contrast, was budgeted at $120 million, which is less than the two Matrix sequels, which received $150 million apiece. So they filmed it at the same time. So basically gave them $300 million to make two movies simultaneously. The original Matrix movie was $63 million, which really does sound modest in comparison. Bound, it's really impressive that they made that for so little money. For another contrast, episodes of Sense8. One episode of season one of Sense8 was budgeted at 4.5. An episode of season two of Sense8 each one was budgeted at $9 million. So one episode of season two of Sense8 has a budget 50% larger than Bound. I think that's fascinating. The, the, bringing up budget now because Cloud Atlas is the, one of the most expensive independent movies ever. I was kind of shocked when I found out that Cloud Atlas counted as an independent movie. It doesn't feel like that when you're watching it and when you see the price tag. It's, it's really interesting. I love that the German government is one of the primary financiers of, of Cloud Atlas. The whole thing. The whole story is great. That's because of Run, Lola, Run. Right. So, Melissa, I'm going to turn it over to you. How do you feel? How do you really feel about Cloud Atlas? I feel overwhelmed by Cloud Atlas. Not in a bad way. I think my Letterboxd review of this movie was like, okay, I need to see this 10 times. But Cloud Atlas is a 2012 adaptation of a 2004 David Mitchell novel by the same name. Here's a fun fact that I learned prepping for this podcast. There is a third director of this movie named Tom Tykwer, and he did the music for Resurrections and Sensei and this movie. And I think that that is cute and fun. It's not just cast members that the Wachowskis really like to work and rework with. So I have not actually read the book for this. And so I would like to know if anyone has and if this is a good adaptation outside of all the other things about this movie that may be good or bad. (laughs) I know. Yay. (laughs) Because podcasting is a visual medium. I have now seen the cover of the Cloud Atlas novel on my screen. (laughs) I'll tell you really quick and I'll shut up. So David Mitchell is my favorite author. And... This is, so, again, because podcasting is a visual medium, I'll show you. This is how Clad Atlas works. Mm -hmm. Each short story starts with a title page like that, right? And this, the first one is the story about the dude on the boat, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you you keep reading. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. We're reading. So We're flipping pages. You can't, you can't see that really well. Yeah, you're reading. <laughs> that page ends mid-sentence, okay? Like pages in a novel do, right? Sometimes. They leave you hanging. So it's, it's like the last episode of the, the Sopranos. Gotcha. What happens in you get to the middle of the story of Adam Ewing, it stops mid-sentence, and the next story begins. And you go all the way through, and... Um, you know, through time. So you end up with the kind of new civilization storyline. And that one you read in its entirety. And then when you, when you finish that story, you get the second half of the next story. I believe that's the new soul story. But it was like this, it's second to last, right? They cascade back down. 
Right. So basically, you read the first half of every story except for the one furthest on in time, and then you go backwards, you know, in mm-hmm. reverse order. So it's like you took a short story, opened it up to the middle, and put another story inside of it, opened that one up to the middle, and kept putting them in. How very so Finnegan's Wake. It's so it's that's that's how it works. The movie's not, the movie's not structured like that, obviously. But does the movie right. give you like the correct sense? Do you think of these stories in the book, or would a movie structured the same way as the book been better? Right. So I have my other my other visual is is this book by David Mitchell called Slade House, which is neat. Uh, it has a neat cover because it's like a cover. It's a mm, fake cover, mm-hmm. and it's got like a map inside. This is like the Avengers Assemble of his books because almost all of his books are linked together. His first novel, Ghostwritten, is a series of short stories about this soul or spirit that flits across different times into different people. Obviously, Cloud Atlas has some things to say about linked heritage. Characters from novels show up in other novels descendants show up in other novels he is very much into this idea of storytelling that shows you how people are linked Mm -hmm. in different ways that we because we all want to think about genetics right genetics are everything genetic means everything except it means so little it's very reductive unless it's jupiter ascending right well that's that's (laughs) It's fun. It's fun to think about that. But he's all about thinking about these connections between people and different ways that you can make them. And so clearly he thought that this was a good way to replicate that in film mm-hmm. form. Okay. So have any has anyone here seen Run Lola Run, the other movie by Tom Twaker? Yes. Uh, one, I, I think I think this movie is very uh resonant of that from what I've seen of Cloud Atlas, because again, I did just turn it off partway through. One, because it's long two because it's tired but it's i think it's clear that lana like gets half of her style from uh the main character of run the run which is really cool that was one of the things like going to this movie that i was like excited about was like oh sweet the dude who did run the run and, and the wachowskis are teaming up this is gonna be awesome so like it's interesting that basically this movie was almost two movies and it is a very long film. It's like they made two films sharing a cast and then they like mm. stacked them on top of each other and I think that that's really interesting. It's it's two it's two movies in a trench coat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this leads to something that that I know you wanted to talk about, but I'll turn the question on you. What's what are the you can you can pretty much pull these apart mm-hmm. and think about them as different short fil- short-ish films. Different storylines. Are there some that are better than others, Melissa? Um, for me, my favorite storyline is Sun Me Four Five Ones and how her life like continues because I think that that's the clearest exi- for my brain. That's the clearest entryway to like this idea of like how our lives trickle through time and intercept with other people's lives because hers is like actually in the reality of the film doing that the post-apocalypse civilization is you know worshiping her testimony basically um and i think that when you're exploring um like labor exploitation and capitalism at large like the fact that she was like a martyr to those ideas being a religious figure in a post-apocalypse that i assume is still experiencing 
labor exploitation and capitalism at large. Like, I think that all of that stuff is really interesting. I would watch a two and a half hour movie about that character and that civilization, but we get all these other things to explore as well. Um, I love Beidana. She's in Sense8. But yeah, so I She's think- in a lot of these films. Like, I was actually shocked to see her in, in Jupiter Ascending yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. And she looks yeah. cool as hell. But yeah, so that's my favorite because of the way that those things all like intertwine with each other. And for me, at least, it was harder to find kind of like thematic through lines with the other stories, although I'm sure that the book does a better job of that. It's I, I think that that's a maybe. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's all. It, yeah, it's really all about a lot of those connections not being made explicit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just thinking about how this character's experience, you know, when we talk about my great, great, great grandfather did X, Y, and Z. And it's like, that's neat that that's somebody from your family. But the idea that can these experiences affect something like a genetic code, this idea of, and, and that's really kind of what the tattoo does, right? Mm. You know, that tattoo jumps around from characters that different actors play and, you know, the idea is, is we talk about collective unconscious, you know, again, genetics and things like that. Is there more to it than that? Are these experiences also embedded in who we are and change future generations? And Which is fun to think about when you think about, am I related to a guy who got committed involuntarily and had to sneak out? Like, how does that... How does that play into any of this? The Timothy Cavendish storyline is definitely the funniest storyline mm-hmm. of the series. How he gets, I mean, it doesn't sound funny on paper, but he gets involuntarily committed and he's like trying to escape and he's just such a, he's such a lovable, unlovable character that I just think that it works pretty well. Without getting into the the controversy of this film, which I do want to talk about, I think what this film does does for the viewers that perhaps the novel isn't able to do is that it allows us to rely on our recognition of these actors throughout like these different stories. So like Tom Hanks is in every single story uh, except for one, I think. And like being able to be like, Oh, like this is supposed to represent like this person or this soul or whatever you want to call it, like trickling down through time you know, like, and like Bay Dunas and a lot of them, uh, Hugh Grant, uh, Hugo Weaving, who does some really good work in this, um, just as menacing as ever. But like, it's interesting the way that this film really relies on visuals in a way that I don't think that the novel can mm-hmm. in order to communicate the connections between all of these different storylines. Unfortunately, that also backfires for them as well. So let's go ahead and just maybe touch on it a little bit. So there is a, a uh, you can call it a lot of different things, but uh, the the race bending, I think, is an interesting way to phrase it. Melissa, what did you think about all of that? Well, it's hard for me because I like the main issue when the film was released, I believe, was like the characters in yellow face makeup. And I'm not going to act like I'm an expert in this. And I also wasn't really paying attention when this movie was released. And I am a white lady there. But the reason I put race bending in the notes is because there are white actors in makeup to play other races. There are actors of other races in like makeup to make them look white. Um, I 
Like, I, I almost feel like if this movie was created in a vacuum, we would get to have different conversations about how this, like, these makeup choices work thematically, but that is just never going to happen. And I thought about this when Andy was talking about his trouble with the Wachowskis earlier, is that they do act like a lot of their filmmaking decisions happen in a vacuum. And I love that they feel confident to do that, but <laughs> not many of us get that opportunity in our lives or in our brains. <laughs> I think that's a that's a really good point to make. And I think between the, the two of you, Andy and Melissa, I think you've really kind of hit on what it is. It's an issue of thinking you are creating work in a vacuum and you may or may not have a justification for it, but it doesn't matter what the justification is because you live in a world. You, you don't even have to you finish live your in a sentence. World. You live it. in a world. Yeah, I, I, I liked this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed watching it the yellow face in it is obviously problematic I mean I'm not going to make any kind of like claim that it's not I really wish they hadn't done it Mm -hmm. because I can see I I see where it comes from like I see where the rationale is because you can do this in a book right where you have different people who are the same people who change races in reincarnation. That's not yellow face. That's changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like through, through being reborn. Right. The problem is, is that when you try to visually represent that by using the same actors, you're going to run into yellow face very, very fast. And that is obviously, it doesn't excuse what they're doing, but you can see the impulse there. My question is, why couldn't they have just used the white actors? Like, it's not unreasonable to expect that there would be white people in Neo Soul in 2144 or whenever this particular timeline is supposed to be set. Like, it to me, I, I guess I just don't understand why it was so important to them to, like, preserve that particular aspect of the original novel. But... Also, the makeup isn't good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like just looking at like some of these like yellow face moments, I'm just like, this doesn't look like a real person, much less like an Asian person. Well, so I, I also think that when they get to the toward the end of the movie, it's like, look, we did it in reverse too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. also doesn't look great. Yeah, not I'm only just, did no. Yeah, I mean, not as offensive, obviously, but it just doesn't look good. So, like, it just feels like if they actually had one writer of Asian descent in their writer's room. Like somebody needed to be able to tell them, no, like this is not going (laughs) to work. Two Americans, a German and a Brit walk into a room and then out comes this idea. Well, yeah. And it's like, it doesn't matter how pure and like lovely your intentions are. Like somebody somewhere funding this movie had to have been like, Hey man, people are not going to like this when it comes out. Like, no matter how you personally feel about it or how, like, beautiful you find the ideas, people are going to be pissed. And yeah. they should be. And they are. I said when when Warner Brothers dropped out, I was like, oh, look, there was the voice of reason. And Tessa said, studios aren't known for being the voice of reason. And I'm like, you're right. Well, and then, and then you have uh, their next movie where the studio decided to be overly involved. I do think it's interesting to talk about the Wachowskis' relationship with, with Asian culture. We obviously aren't going to like cover it in any kind of depth, but I think it, it's interesting to make the connection between their 
use of Asian culture and the David Mitchell's use of Asian culture because he writes a lot of his books set in in Asia and he writes a lot and he's a white person. So, you know, it is interesting to perhaps interrogate how these white people came together and maybe didn't think this through because like this movie came out way too late for Yellowface to even be socially considered acceptable. Uh, right. So, this interrogation brought yeah. to you by poor white people. <laughs> but I love this movie. Like, that's the thing is that like, this is a very good movie taking that particular aspect out of it. So Melissa, what, what was your overall impression? Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie. I would like to watch it more times so that I can get, like a deeper emotional understanding of how all of these storylines are interconnected. My strongest takeaway, um, this being my first watch, is that this like really feels like a starting point for what Sensei is doing. I read some parts of an AV Club interview that I pulled out of the Wikipedia citations of this movie. And they're talking about um, how difficult the funding was and how it was up in the air. The movie almost died like a few times. And it was Tom Hanks that was like very, very ready to go at any point in time. And they were saying like every time like Tom got on the plane, the quote is it was like a giant leap of faith from all over the globe. And I'm like, that sentence is since eight. And so I like to see the evolution of the ideas from this movie. Like, they don't have to do any type of makeup on anybody in Sense8 because they literally got the whole world together to make this TV show. And I just Mm. love that. (laughs) And David Mitchell has been, like, a collaborator with them Mm -hmm. since this film, Mm -hmm. like a frequent collaborator. So that brings us to either the worst movie that the Wachowskis have made or not. If you're me, I guess. <laughs> We're talking about Jupiter Ascending. This was the first time you had seen Jupiter Ascending, had, right? Yeah, this was the first time I had seen Speed Racer and Jupiter Ascending. So you're like completely unlocked now on your Wachowski. I, well, I haven't watched season two of Sensei. Oh, that's true. Okay, so, so you're not completely unlocked. I will be. I will be. So briefly, Sam, what is this movie? Well, this is a movie that you get if two... Wachowskis make a movie that interrogates mm-hmm. ideas of transhumanity, which is the intersection of humanism and posthumanism, along with a fantastical story about alien royalty that takes cues from The Odyssey and The Wizard of Oz, where you have a character who is exactly the same as they were at the beginning, like Dorothy but have gone on a fantastic journey that will change themselves and everyone around them, like the Odyssey. And you also really had some things to say about bureaucracy for reasons. Hmm. I think it's interesting that this is the first like original IP film that they had done since the Matrix trilogy. Yeah, this is an idea that they were birthing during Cloud Atlas. And so... It was one of those things where a lot of the people who are in Cloud Atlas have had, are in Jupiter Ascending, played roles behind the camera, consulted, gave their thoughts. It really was a team effort, and they ended up making this movie. So this is famously a bad movie. I think it has like a 28% 
on Rotten Tomatoes. Why is this so bad? I, first, I need to say the more that I see this movie, the more that, or the more that I think about this movie, and I've thought about it a lot since we watched it. You know, like I don't know, a day ago. I like this movie more every oh, time I think about because it. Because you haven't seen it again. That's the problem. No. The reason it's a bad movie is very simple. They did half a dozen fantastic things, and not a one of them works together with each other. The Matrix. I think The Matrix, 10 people could have made that movie, and all but one or one group in this case would have failed. The Matrix is a terrible movie that somehow was made correctly. This is a movie that was great that was somehow made terribly. That's that's my take on this. Is you know when the Wachowskis are at their best, they're thinking about a bunch of different ideas. They throw them together, right? And they either work or they don't. This one is the biggest best example of it not okay. working. Michael Giacchino did the score mm-hmm. he created the entire mm. score before the movie was made and the wachowskis have said they will never make a movie where that is not done again uh, because it's a way of thinking about visual storytelling using uh, a score as your base they did they did one of their mind-bending minutes-long special effects scenes it took mila kunis and channing tatum to Every day for 60 days to shoot the uh, flying through Chicago scene. It looks great. As you know, I don't care about these things. I don't care about the interstate chase in Reloaded. I don't care about this, but I recognize it's good. This whole story about being taken to outer space and this story about... I mean, they went back to the well of the Matrix. Instead, it's human-like people feeding off of other humans instead of machines feeding off of humans. They recycled that from the Matrix. They brought in Kafka. They did a whole Kafka thing, which graphs so well in a culture where you can get an X on driver's licenses in some states, but that won't match with your passport yet. So can you get on a plane and trying in Arkansas to get true ID if you don't have a birth certificate or a tax return with your entire social security number on it, let alone change your name because you got married or you immigrated. Like what they're talking about in this story is everything that we deal with today. The idea about one person who has more money than you, their idea of humanity being the only acceptable idea. Why these things were interesting to the Wachowskis, I couldn't possibly imagine. (laughs) But it's such a bad movie. So, but is it fun though? I, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I uh, no. Okay. okay. I, I, uh, I, I, I need I need to say a few things. Like one, the, the this plot reads like Tumblr fan fiction of something. Mm-hmm. My I, favorite. I'm just I'm just saying. Channing Tatum is a. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna say that Tumblr Channing fan Tatum fiction is, is a half bad, human, Andy. half canine. <laughs> Sean Bean as a. Half human, half honeybee. By the way, Channing Tatum <laughs> is Toto. Yes, yes. I told you yes, it was based know, on I Wizard know, of Oz. I'm not uh, joking. This apparently was supposed to be a trilogy that they got cut down into one movie because the studio was unhappy with Cloud Atlas. And 
We're unhappy, but here's here's hundred well, million plus dollars again, for a movie. Here you go. Originally supposed to be a trilogy. So, uh, so so th- that that is that is at least my understanding. And if you take this movie as this crazy stuff was supposed to be fleshed out over three movies. I think it fits a little bit better. It gives you a little bit more space to breathe. If you didn't have Eddie Redmayne, it'd be a lot better. You know, I don't know about that. Eddie Redmayne, or as I call him, Timothy Eddie Matt okay. Smith Redmayne. I, 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 I really, I really want to be nice to the to this movie. Um, it, it, I, I had fun watching it because it's not good, and uh, it's laughable how, how bad it is. But I do love the idea that, like, out of, by chance. A gene's going to be replicated 100%. That's really cool. I like that. And it will write the plot for Hamlet. I will say that this is a very beautiful movie, though. Like, their idea of these different civilizations in space and the way that they borrow a lot from, like, Renaissance art especially, I think it's so different from anything else they had ever done visually that I think that that works pretty well. But, yeah, it's... I can't, yeah, like you said, I should like this movie more than I do. But I am interested, Melissa, you've seen this movie. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I don't like this movie that much. But it's not because I think it's a bad movie. Like, for me, it feels basically on par with, like, you know, your B-list Marvel movies or whatever. Like, the plot is nonsense. It looks fine. The the my problem with this movie is that Channing Tatum is hilarious, and they do not let he is a half wolf, and this man does not have one smidgen of a personality. Mm-hmm. And I think that if he <laughs> had a personality, then I would buy into this chemistry between him and Mila Kunis, and then this would be one of my favorite movies ever because it's a huge, insane spectacle with a half wolf Channing Tatum. And Mila Kunis, and I just don't care all about them falling in love and kissing. Like, this is ridiculous. How? <laughs> can, can I just say, though, that the best line of this movie is her saying, I like dogs to him? I, and then she's like, why? <laughs> when Channing Tatum's character puts a personal ad out, it, ha- it does, in fact, say must love no, dogs. Nope, 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 nope. So yes, I yes, think yes. I, you know what I'm thinking though. I was gonna say I think people are gonna turn around on this movie, and I think I'm wrong about that. That's not true. People are gonna turn around about Speed Racer. I think people are gonna recognize that's a much better movie than they thought. But I think if you put Jupiter Ascending together with Sensate, to me, those two things together say if you promise to hire a sensitivity reader or 17 we will give you all the money you want and you just go do whatever it is you want to do like if the story of jupiter ascending is it was supposed to be a trilogy and got mashed into three well that tells me they need to be given money to do a trilogy of movies they just need some sensitivity folks i just don't understand who is financing movies and is like i don't want to pay for three movies that are good but i would love to pay for one that is bad like you cannot make three movies into one movie and i should be paid to make movies apparently because this doesn't seem complicated (laughs) what we've learned today is if you finance your own movies you can do stupid things like race bending but if you go through a studio they will make your life miserable and make you make stupid decisions like this one so what we've, what we've determined here is nobody should make movies ever. 
And that will be the last episode of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really feels like people, like, it, I, to me, that's the thing. Like, the Wachowskis are excellent storytellers, except when they're not. But they do need to be a little bit more aware of yeah. the world around them. And this goes well, back to something that we talked about on Wild Pretty Things. They're telling stories that are very personal. So it's I, I can imagine how it's hard to want to invite others in. But But you have to You kinda do need to. The middle ground solution between people making indie movies and bad choices and then making studio movies where the studio makes bad choices was for a hot second Netflix. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then they made they made different bad choices and people still don't get to make good movies. Ah. <laughs> uh. You know that thing where you're not supposed to criticize people if you don't have a solution or you don't think you can do better? Well, these people suck and I could do better. <laughs> yeah. We've never met that thing. <laughs> well, we yeah, we talk about brain drain. Usually we talk about it in television writing. And while recognizing how hard it can be to write for television on the scale and pace... I we Tessa and I talk about often how we could do better, and I think it's true. It's really sad, and it sounds like that's the story of the Wachowskis in many, many ways. Pretty much everyone who works in that town could be replaced by people more skilled. The same thing's true of government, right? These are just the people maybe, we have. Maybe doing let's it. not bring that up on uh, on a podcast. No, <laughs> <sighs> I feel like such a. Well, I think we've I think we picked that subject apart. I do have to say, is this is Jupiter ascending the last Wachowski sisters movie? It's the last one for now. Do we think they'll ever team back up to make a movie? I hope so. Well, since eight season two, episode one is a two hour episode, so that already is fudging the rules. Um, it was written by both Lily and Lana, but directed by Lana alone, so it fails on two accounts. Lily might not be interested <laughs> in, in in directing anymore. Well, that's like... not true. She is involved in a television show. What she has said in interviews is that she's not interested in uh, science fiction And that makes me anymore. interested. But yeah. Lana is very clearly. Yeah, she... I mean, and it's, it's not difficult to see why. I mean, like, she... The Wachowskis have a very toxic fan base from from some people, especially after they both came out. And, you know, I, Lana has kind of deconstructed that in Matrix Resurrections. We talked about that on the Wild Pretty Things episode. But Lily just seems very interested in not using metaphors that science fiction provides anymore because she's gotten a lot more involved in LGBTQ plus television which I think is a really interesting move for her. But yeah, it is a little sad. I mean, like, good for her. Like, you know, there's nothing saying siblings have to work together forever. I'm surprised they worked as well as they did for so long, knowing my relationship with some of my siblings. But like, you know, it is kind of sad to think like that that's kind of it. Like, you know. Allegedly, Tom Hanks referred to them as mom and dad. On that the was set before. Of Atlas. Yes, Lily that was. Come out. Yes. Yeah. You could still call them mom and dad if you want. <laughs> all right so to talk about next week's episode andy is going to be traveling 
Yes. And I feel like... Press your luck! Woo! I, 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 I feel like my last episode was full of negativity about these two very creative uh, directors. <laughs> well, not your last episode ever. Just your last episode before R- break. Right, before like three weeks, yeah. <laughs> like you, it made you well. sound like you were like quitting the podcast. Uh, you no, know, like on that no. note, I'm done. <laughs> dear, dear, well, if Sam makes one more pun, one more. <laughs> so I see week, your face. You're thinking about making one right now. You're, you're, you're scrambling to make one. I hope she you're does. trying to call my bluff. I fucking love puns. <laughs> <laughs> puns are the highest form of humor. Let's let's make that controversial statement on they podcast. Just hit it every time. According to True Blood, True Blood said that it's the best TV True. show ever aired. <laughs> the only major television series to to feature a scene where a main character loses their virginity to a Taylor Swift song. It's true. <laughs> that scene a lot actually that that scene that's, lives right free in my mind that's right up there with the Coldplay song in smallville thank you and good night so next week it'll just be sam and i we have decided very last minute to swap childhood movies so we're gonna make each other watch a favorite childhood movie of the other person or two or three or two or three we haven't decided yet since it's only the two of us we're kind of like going a little wild but yeah we're gonna talk about childhood favorites which is always a dangerous proposition but i'm excited i think it'll work yeah we're it's it's gonna be wild it won't be pretty but we're gonna talk about things and now andy's never coming back (laughs) uh well and now i want to because sam's one of sam's movies i see on this list is like one of my favorite movies from my childhood we're going to watch the Jenny Lewis Nintendo movie. Not that one. <laughs> yeah, the, that, was, that was the thing that was so difficult about that. She was like, what movie? And the movie you're talking about, which you'll have to tune in next week to find out, but the movie you're referring to is literally the first thing that came out of my mouth. Like, there was no delay. It was muscle memory. That's the movie you need to see. And then later I was like, but there's a Jenny Lewis Nintendo movie. Okay, I have to say this. We've been recording for an hour and a half, and you can totally cut this out, Sam, if you want. But I, I do have to say, it's actually really funny how this came about because it's technically my themed episode, but like for once in my life, I had a complete blank about what I wanted to do. And so Sam kept asking me, like, we have to plan this. We have to plan this. We have to ask a guest. And I was just like, I don't know. Like, I can't think of anything. I don't want to, like, be repetitive. I can't think of anything. And literally... An hour after we went to bed, I like woke up from a deep sleep and like woke up Sam and I was like, I know what we're going to do. <laughs> she, I, now, now she, she just, the way she said it just now, she was, she basically, this is what really happened. I know what we're going to do. Do you want to? <laughs> Tessa didn't tell you this, but I am choosing to call this. Tessa's very special episode. So join us for that. It's going to be fun. In the meantime, Melissa, where can people find you online and tell them about the podcast? Yeah, well, you guys have already heard a lot about Wild Pretty Things, so I'll just tell you the title again. It's Wild Pretty Things. You can find us on all the podcast places. You can find me personally on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mellow Yellow. Andy. 
You can find me in Minneapolis this this uh, next weekend if it's coming out, or this weekend. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at uh, Andy Noted. Um, you can find me being tired. Please, please, just let me rest. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. You can find me on Letterboxd under the same name. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ox Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. You can find that podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogs Book Club. You can find me online at Sam underscore Morris 9. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What we got right or wrong about the Wachowskis. What pop culture you crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Goodbye. <laughs>